Well, it's such a great year to be a Leafs fan in Toronto. Actually, more than just a Leafs fan, a sports fan. Uh, Toronto Raptors are, you know, pushing the 76ers. Did so well during the season. Scotty Barnes, Rookie of the Year. Jurassic Park is open. Lots of energy to be cheering for our, our Raptors. And, uh, and the Leafs, this is the year they win the Stanley Cup. It's been 55 years, quite the drought. Uh, but this is the year Austin Matthews, 60 goals at least. And uh, just kind of moving forward, look out Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, this could be the year they win the cup. I'm sure you've never, ever heard that before, but uh, we believe around here that the Leafs can, can do it this year. And uh, the Blue Jays, they're saying that they're one of the favorite teams to win the uh, World Series this year. And we are heading down to the Rogers Center as a church family on uh, Wednesday, June the 1st. Jays and, and White Sox at Rogers Center. And we'd love to have you come and join us. Transportation and ticket included, $25 each. You can head over to our website, kingstreet.org, and you can uh, reserve your ticket. We'd love to have you come join us. We leave the, uh, the ballpark no later than 10 o'clock, even if they go into the 14th or 15th inning, because I know people, we know that people have to get to work the next morning. So we hope you'll come and join us. It's always a fun time to be together as a church family. Spread the word, invite a friend, neighbor, family member. It's going to be a, a good night together. Uh, so last week, we started a, a scripture talk series called Getting Along, really relevant these days for uh, all that we're facing in our polarized world and culture. And uh, we talked about how people are not the problem. We addressed some of those myths that are out there that serve as like a foundational framework for us. Um, this idea that um, conflict and community and chaos uh, some people believe that you can't have conflict in community, and if you do, it's always chaotic. Uh, we believe there's another way, that in fact, you can't really have a strong sense of community unless there is a measure of conflict, and it can be managed in such a way where it doesn't have to be chaotic. And uh, we also learn that you don't have to agree together in order to accept one another. It's a myth to say that I have to see eye to eye with you in order to walk shoulder to shoulder. And then we also address the myth of unity and uniformity. They are not the same thing. If we're shooting for uniformity, then everyone is choosing not to think for themselves and one person is doing all the thinking for the rest of us. So um, if you didn't get a chance to hear that scripture talk last week, you can again find it on our, on our YouTube channel as well. So this morning, we're going to continue this series um, about getting along. United we stand. And uh, the inverse is also true, divided we, we fall. And our passage to ponder is taken from Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, goes like this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, remember Paul starts with identity. He reminds the uh, early Christians who they are. They are to be um, God's chosen people, and they understand they live differently. They're holy, and they are in the crosshairs of God's love. And because of that, Paul says, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and then bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Uh, forgiveness provides a fractured relationship, a chance to heal and uh, makes room for reconciliation. And it's another way of saying that forgiveness presents an opportunity to move from um, disunity and disharmony toward uh, harmony and unity. And, um, and so right from the beginning of the story uh, of the Bible, we see the first man and the first woman living in harmony with uh, creation, with themselves, 
with God. And, uh, and scripture says that for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then something happens and it's tragic and we've all been reaping the whirlwind from that event. The first man, the first woman chose to live independent of God and um, sin came into our experience. Sin separates people. Uh, God invites people to move from plurality to people becoming one, a picture of community. And at the apex of that is um, Christian marriage. And, and then we have this uh, disobedience or independent living of God, and it separates people. You find the first man, the first woman hiding from God, blaming each other, experiencing shame. Sin always separates, and God always wants to move us from, plural, from plurality to oneness. And so this morning, what we're going to do is take a look at unity according to Jesus, unity according to the Apostle Paul. We're going to take a quick look at some of the disruptors, actually one primarily, primary one that can actually disrupt our measure of unity. We'll take a quick look at, as well at some prescriptives uh, that are found in the New Testament for us in order to uh, pursue harmony and unity. And then we'll finish with a, um, uh, a metaphor, uh, like a modern day parable that Max Lucado tells. I think you'll find it interesting. So let's start with Jesus and unity. Uh, Jesus was concerned with the inverse of unity, which is disunity. And uh, again, if you're new to the Christian faith, uh, you, you uh, are probably warming up to the stories of the Bible. Um, again, making friends with the concept of who is God and uh, what is he looking for from us and what does he want for us? And um, so we, we understand that in the Bible, uh, there's this word, um, it's actually not in the Bible, Trinity, but it's really getting at this idea that there is one God who is uh, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's like a tri-unity to who God is. Um, God is one, and, uh, but he is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in um, beautiful harmony with one another. And so there's three persons in the one God. And if we try to figure that out, we're going to lose our minds because it's a mystery that our small minds, brains cannot um, uh, capture. And at the same time, if we uh, reject the idea, we do a disservice to our own soul. We are made in the image and likeness of God, which means we have strong capacity for relationship because God himself is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we crave connection. It's just who we are because we bear the image. We bear the likeness of the God who is a relationship. So here are the words of Jesus, um, Mark chapter 9. It's absolutely brilliant as uh, Mark records these, these words of Jesus. Um, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples. I thought this was hilarious. He says, what were you discussing out on the road? Uh, they were having a conversation among themselves. And this is what Mark tells us. They didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine? They're having this conversation. It turns into an argument about who was greater than the other. Uh, Jesus, probably smiling through this, he sat down, called the 12 disciple friends over to him, and he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. It's not about pursuing your own greatness. It's about actually helping other people. And in so doing, we become great. Um, and so uh, then he does this beautiful thing. He says, the text says, he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he picks up this weak, um, dependent, small human who doesn't offer much of anything in the sense of value or power. Um, he he the child can't give back very much necessarily. And in that culture, they were somewhat disregarded and pushed off to the side. Um, 
Jesus picks up this little child in his arms and he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. And so true greatness involves looking after the ones who are deemed insignificant or who are overlooked or who are on the underside of power and without influence in the world. And Jesus places this bravado posture of the disciples who are arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. He cross compares them with this little child who doesn't have a whole lot necessarily to offer at this stage of their journey, disregarded by the popular culture. And he says, when you stoop and you pick up one of these, I can't give you a whole lot. And who doesn't have a lot of power or influence, when you look after them, you're on the path to greatness. Beautiful, beautiful thought uh, for us. And then he keeps talking. John said to Jesus, or the interaction continues, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. I love these two interactions and they're back to back where Jesus confronts the measure of disunity that is creeping into the disciple friends circle. And it's all because of their desire to be great or to have some measure of supremacy over the other. And Jesus confronts it. And uh, he shows us the true pathway to greatness and he goes after unity because everyone together can reach out to people um, who can't necessarily give anything back to us. And as we work together, we'll come to this a little bit later, we can pursue unity when we have a common goal and a common mission together. And then the disciple friends are saying, these people over here, they're not in our group. We, we don't know them. And, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is bigger than you can imagine. And there are people on the other side of the city, on the other side of the world who are doing things in Jesus' name, and they may do it a little bit differently, but they are part of us. They are part of the one family, the one body of Christ. How often we look at other people who are in other groups and we look at them with some measure of um, concern or suspicion uh, or cynicism in some way. And, and Jesus is calling us to think wider thoughts about the diversity within the beautiful body of Christ. It's a, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to consider what it means to be in this beautiful, diverse body of Christ. United we stand, and Jesus goes after that. Um, Jesus was also passionate about unity. Um, when Jesus was praying, John records these words for us in chapter 17, verse 20. He says, I'm praying, he was praying for himself, praying for his disciple friends, and he prays for us, all who would believe in him through the witness of previous generations. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. We can underline that part. I pray that they will all be one, the strong measure of unity. He's got a passion for this. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. There is something about the unity of the people of God who have put their saving faith in Jesus, who reach to bring one another together to the center with Jesus. That is a testimony to the world around us of what it looks like to truly get along in spite of differences. Uh, the two reasons why Jesus is passionate about unity is because we are called to reflect the God who is 
Again, there is a plurality and the oneness uh, brought together, synchronized in the Godhead. We are a, a community called to live together in, in, a, in, a, in a sense of unity and harmony, even though there are differences among us. And so we reflect the unity of the Godhead. That's what we're called to do, like to be right-angled mirrors, to reflect to the world the character and the nature of God by how we live our lives. And we're also called to be on mission. And Jesus says that there's something about our unity and the way we would live um, pursuing oneness together that would actually be a um, sign to the world that we are living as Paul writes in Colossians 3, we are the chosen people of God, we are holy people, dearly loved, and then we live a certain way. And so uh, the mission of Jesus was to come and to rescue and to seek and to save that which was lost. And all of us, when we are living independent of God, just like the first man and the first woman, uh, we're, we're lost and God's come looking for us. And he calls out, where are you? Because he wants a relationship with his friends. Um, we are also on a mission with Jesus in the world to make him known. And we do that individually in families and we do that collectively as a church community. And so uh, Jesus, um, he was deeply concerned about disunity and he was passionate about unity. And then unity according to uh, the Apostle Paul, who's responsible for writing much of the New Testament. Um, he wrote about how Jesus brings us together despite our differences. Um, listen to this. This is found in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, he's talking to first century Christians. There were two groups of people, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And they were living somewhat separately, looking at each other with a measure of criticism. And Paul says this ought not to be the case. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. These are non-Jews. You used to be outsiders, outside the circle. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. I'll pause there for just a second. Circumcision back in the ancient world for the Jewish community was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And so this was a, um, uh, a beautiful picture again of God's um, invitation to, for them to symbolically be his people. And, um, and so uh, again, Jewish people were circumcised physically. The Jewish males were circumcised physically. And Paul says, but it, it didn't impact your hearts. He says, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in the world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, outsiders, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us, you can underline that, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Unity makes room for outsiders. According to Paul, unity is not about a closed circle. It's actually about a, a deep sense of family that always has room at the table for one more. 
And it's a posture of unity that is not exclusive, uh, but one that reaches to include those who are not yet seated at the table. And uh, unity doesn't discriminate about language or ethnicity or gender or age, and it drops the hostility and the bias against other people. What on earth is God doing in the world? Well, God is building a family and he's inviting more and more people to be a part of it. And a unified church is on mission with Jesus in the world, not as a closed circle that's exclusive, but as an open circle making room for others. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And so in Paul's eyes, uh, he saw that uh, Jesus... Jesus was the one who brought us together despite our differences. Um, and unity makes room for outsiders. Let's just talk briefly about um, unity disruptors. And in fact, um, we're going to talk just briefly about one, which is really our words or the misuse of our words. Um, what factors are at play that foster disunity or disharmony? Well, I think it's the words we speak to each other and the words we speak about each other. And then the posture that we adopt that kind of walls other people off and treats them in a negative way like they're outsiders. And where we take away the open chair at the table of our lives. And we just sort of say, there's no room for you in my heart any longer. And so our words can be very problematic. I just want to read four verses from Proverbs that will kind of get at this. Here's the first one, Proverbs 16, 28. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife or discord, it could be said. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife or discord, and a gossip separates the best of friends. Two people walking together closely as good friends, all of a sudden gossip becomes the experience in the relationship and there's separation that occurs. Remember, sin always separates and when we gossip and we speak out of turn about each other, it creates problems in our relationship and it fractures our unity. Here's a second proverb, chapter 26, verse 20. Fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. Uh, there's a fire, you're sitting around, it's, uh, you're at the cottage, you're at the trailer, and unless you keep putting a log on the fire, it eventually goes out. Uh, the writer of Proverbs says, when we stoke the fire of gossip and slander, we end up creating quarrels and disharmony and fracturing relationships as we talked earlier. So why don't we just drop putting more fuel on the fire? Let's kind of empty the fire somewhere away from the, or empty the, the fuel somewhere away from the flame. And uh, that will help us, uh, again, preserve and promote unity. Third verse from Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person starts fights. A cool-tempered person stops them. And uh, when we lead, lead unregulated lives, where emotions get the upper hand in our lives, we say things we regret, we hurt people by having a volatile outburst, it creates a lot of problems for people. A hot-tempered person starts fight, but a cool-tempered person stops them. A lot of wisdom there. And then finally... Uh, chapter 17, verse 14, starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate. So stop before a dispute breaks out. You know, the way of wisdom is actually asking ourselves the question, what do I need to start doing? Uh, what do I need to continue doing? And what do I need to stop doing? The stop doing can sometimes be the hardest. And um, we show great wisdom when we can self-regulate and when we can uh, choose to just um, stop speaking when the words we choose are about to hurt someone else, whether we're in their presence or not. And so uh, it is a problem for human beings and for all of us to misuse our words. And it is a unity disruptor. 
And so uh, may, may God give you great wisdom on how you manage your words. When they are spoken, as the Jewish people used to understand, they're like an arrow that gets released. You can't get it back. Um, a sword you can hold on to, and you can do a lot of damage with that. But an arrow, once it's released, it goes, and it can do a lot of damage. And the words cannot be taken back. Um, let me read this parable. Max Lucata wrote this. Uh, I've, I've really loved this over the years. It's called Life on Board the Fellowship. And if you're new to church, fellowship is this word that describes deep relationship, like family kind of connection. And uh, he's using the metaphor of a ship to talk about the diversity of the church and sometimes how we can polarize ourselves against each other. So you'll probably smile through parts of this, but let me read this. God has enlisted us in his Navy and placed us on his ship. The boat has one purpose, to carry us safely to the other shore. This is no cruise ship, it's a battleship. We aren't called to a life of leisure, we're called to a life of service. Each of us has a different task, some concerned with those who are drowning or snatching people from the water. Others are occupied with the enemy, so they man the canons of prayer and worship. Still others devote themselves to the crew, feeding and training the crew members. Though different, we are the same. Each can tell of a personal encounter with the captain, for each has received a personal call. He found us among the shanties of the seaport and invited us to follow him. Our faith was born at the sight of his fondness, and so we went. We each followed him across the gangplank of his grace onto the same boat. There is one captain and one destination. Though the battle is fierce, the boat is safe, for our captain is God. The ship will not sink, for that there is no concern. There is concern, however, regarding the disharmony of the crew. When we first boarded, we assumed the crew was made up of others just like us. But as we've wandered these decks, we've encountered curious converts with curious appearances. Some wear uniforms wherever seen, sporting styles we've never witnessed. Why do you look that way you do, we asked them. Funny, they reply, we were about to ask the same of you. The variety of dress is not nearly as disturbing as the plethora of opinions. There is a group, for example, who cluster every morning for serious study. They promote rigid discipline and somber expressions. Serving the captain is serious business, they explain. It's no coincidence that they tend to congregate around the stern. There's another regiment deeply devoted to prayer. Not only do they believe in prayer, they believe in prayer by kneeling. For that reason, you always know where to locate them. They are at the bow of the ship. And then there is a few who staunchly believe real wine should be used in the Lord's Supper. You'll find them on the port side. Still another group has positioned themselves near the engine. They spend hours examining the nuts and the bolts of the boat. They've been known to go below deck and not come up for days. They are occasionally criticized by those who linger on the top deck, feeling the wind in their hair and the sun in their face. It's not what you learn, those topside argue. It's what you feel that matters. And oh, how we tend to cluster. Some think once you're on the boat, you can't get off. Others say you'd be foolish to go overboard, but the choice is yours. Some believe you volunteer for service. Others believe you were destined for the service before the ship was even built. Some predict a storm of great tribulation will strike before we dock. Others say it won't hit until we're safely ashore. There are those who speak to the captain in a personal language, and there are those who think such languages are extinct. There are those who think the officers should wear robes. There are those who think there should be no officers at all. And are there are those who think we are all officers and should all wear robes. Oh, how we tend to cluster. And then there is the issue of the weekly meeting at which the captain is thanked and his words are read. All agree on its importance, but few agree on its nature. Some want it loud, others quiet. Some want ritual, others want spontaneity. Some want to celebrate so they can meditate. Others meditate so they can celebrate. Some want a meeting for those who've gone overboard. Others want to reach those overboard without going overboard and neglecting those on board. And oh, how we tend to cluster. The consequence is a rocky boat. There is trouble on deck. 
fights have broken out. Sailors have refused to speak to each other. There have been times when one group refused to acknowledge the presence of the others on the ship. Most tragically, some adrift at sea have chosen not to board the boat because of the quarreling of the sailors. I thought that was so good. Just a great reminder for us that the stakes are high. And again, I'm speaking to those who put their saving faith in Jesus, who would be attached to a local church. And I recognize today that there are some people who are at the edges of faith and you haven't at this point along the journey put your saving faith in Jesus and you would consider yourself possibly as somebody who looks from the outside in. And maybe you can even relate to what I had just read. So really quickly, just before we land, a prescription for a, um, for a unified church, five quick statements here. If we pray together, it'll move us toward both God and one another. Praying together is huge. It's hard to fight with someone or it's hard to be um, mean-spirited towards someone you're praying with. And so maybe we need to pray together a bit more. Secondly, serving together. A common mission where we're trying to help other people together. When we're linking arms in service, it's a wonderful movement uh, that keeps us well-connected both to God and to each other. And giving toward a common cause. When each of us agrees that we can probably do more together than we can do separately, and we pool our resources and we help other people, it can go a long way towards bringing us towards a common goal, a common cause, and un uniting us along the way. Encouraging each other, number four, when we actually write an email, a text message, telling somebody what they do is so good and how much value it adds to our lives, it goes a long way to building a bridge. Sometimes we're far too quick to criticize and we should exercise the capacity to encourage others. And then finally, walking through adversity together. When life is tough, and it will be tough for all of us, maybe for some of you, it's tough right now, but when life gets really hard, it's nice to know that there are other people in your corner praying for you, encouraging you, and there to help in any way. I've been blown away lately, by the way, with my, I've got a back issue the last four or five weeks. This church family that I'm a part of, King Street Community Church, has been outstanding to me. Just reaching out, checking in. It means the world when people do that. And we ought to do that for one another, just to be mindful of what people are facing. If we can walk through some adversity together, it's a shared experience that connects people. And uh, it's an important thing to do, to not inflict adversity on one another, but to actually walk shoulder to shoulder through whatever challenges we, may, we might be facing. So I want to invite our host pastors to come back. And just before they do, let me pray for you. Father, thank you again today for this invitation. Um, you are calling us, Lord, to be united. And when we are united, we stand together. And when we're divided, it's unfortunate, but we do fall. And these are, literally are the words of Jesus. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect um, your nature, your character, the one true God, three persons in the Godhead. Help us to reflect your nature and your character to the world around us. And help us, Lord, to not get in the way of the mission, um, to help other people see more clearly who you are. And uh, so, Lord, we're all flawed and we, we don't get it right all the time. We ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to grow and to help us mind our words and help us to be proactive, reaching toward one another. And in so doing, Lord, may we please you and glorify you always. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.